0: Welcome back to Owned and Operated, where we dive deep into the businesses we own, the businesses we are acquiring, and we also bring on guests to talk about their operating struggles. If you like what you hear today, follow Brandon and John on Twitter. That's John at Wilson Companies and Brandon at Brandon Nero. Also, check out our website where you can find all the other cool stuff we do. For example, we're launching a newsletter on ownedandoperated.com. That's owned and operated.com. Check it out. Okay, ladies and gentlemen, today's episode is wild. First of all, Kelsey Larrick stops by, and when I say stops by, I mean he is in our little studio in Akron, recording right alongside John and Brandon. Another thing, Kelsey owns and operates a holding company of e-commerce brands, and he gives us the details on his biggest challenges and how he fought them. This episode is a personal favorite. Enjoy.
1: If you listen to our show, you know that we can spend months sourcing businesses, talking with them, negotiating LOIs, conducting due diligence, all for a deal to fall through at the finish line. MicroAcquire solves that whole problem, whether you're buying or selling a business. As a seller, you're getting introduced to over 50,000 trusted buyers with total anonymity. As a buyer, you get to sort through profitable, vetted sellers and close in 30 days. We don't own any digital businesses yet, but over the next year, we're intending to grab a couple, and MicroAcquire is going to be our
2: choice for a sourcing platform. Welcome back to Own and Operated, featuring John Wilson, Brandon Nero. Another random guests that walk in the door. <laughs> nice, nice,
1: nice. Yeah. So today's introduction was done by Kelsey Kelsey Leric.
2: Um, Can you work on pronouncing my last name? We got we got to get this figured out. Every other podcast host has been kind enough to do it correctly. <laughs>
1: okay. Oh, oh. What, how is it pronounced? Larry. Oh my gosh. We'll figure it out. Okay. Yeah, we will Larrick. figure it out. It's not right, as easy as Brandon's. I mispronounced for the first six months. I didn't tell him. Niro. No, it's Niro. Niro. Exactly. Niro. Exactly. Niro. Yeah, exactly. Got yeah. It. So anyways, we're, we're blessed to be here with Kelsey today. Kelsey, how about you give us a 60 second?
2: Yeah. So my name is Kelsey Larrick, partner and services CEO of 365 Holdings. We're a vertically integrated e-commerce hold code. So we buy a handful of e-commerce brands every year. And our goal is to vertically integrate them under a shared services model. We've got a portfolio of five, soon to be six brands, we're based here in Akron, Ohio, and our stated goal is to be the permanent home for these brands. So we buy with a goal of holding for the long term.
1: I mean, that was a good intro. That was I feel, like I, feel like I know what you guys do now. So you have five. You're about to close on one more, and this is kind of cool because this is our first guest that we've had in person. So Kelsey, it took me six minutes to drive here. Took, yes. <laughs> yeah, that's pretty cool. All right. So purpose of the show is to talk about operational difficulties and how
2: we got through them or did not get through them
1: mm.
2: so we get through all of ours no, no problem <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> all right so you as we were riffing earlier inspired me with a with topic we bought a business earlier this year that was our first acquisition where we didn't know what the post closing vertical integration would be so a bought a business called cultures for health it was on its third owner it's based in north carolina it had a team of can i interrupt real quick is sure. is that like, in e-com,
1: having a third owner... It's an old brand. Okay. Which okay to, I, I mean, to me, I'm already like, that's has to be a flag, right? But it's not... No, if it's, it's a old
2: 16, 17-year-old okay. brand. All right. it, it's Yeah. But okay. If it was one of these, like, Amazon businesses that have been traded every year, I might have some questions. Yeah, yeah. Categorically, we're buying, like, sleepier, more stable existing brands. All right. And so, for someone to be around for 5, 8, 10, 12, 15 years... Rare, but for us, probably a solid thing in terms of like staying power with a brand, assets we're getting, et cetera. Got it. So this business was based in North Carolina and had an established team of about 16, 17 between office-type staff and like warehouse production staff. The business sells fermentation cultures, so everything you need to ferment or culture your own foods. Kombucha, kefir, yogurt, sourdough bread, fermented vegetables. So all the, the raw materials for a DIY person to make those kind of healthy homemade foods. We, going into closing, there'd be some synergies and some consolidation, but also under the assumption we're probably going to have like a multi-state business. Now we're going to begin to, to grow past Northeast Ohio. Fast forward now to May, nearly June and the last semi showed up today for the closing of that plant and its relocation. And we had to do severances and some people have made relocation packages to move to Northeast Ohio, but Post-closing, what we learned was the incredible synergies that we never modeled or predicted or planned for on the front end of the massive cost savings of relocating that business here. So it was an interesting operational challenge to navigate expectations of a decent-sized team. Like previously, when we had done relocations, the plan going into closing was that there wasn't much staff that needed or would or should transition, and it would be a minimal impact. For the first time as owners and partners in 365, myself and Justin had to figure out the right way to actually uproot a business and then the impacts on the existing team and navigating severances and physical relocation of a a real going concern as opposed to a close, pack it up and move it real fast. This is a much more of a structured move because we sell fermentation cultures. We ferment our own stuff. So we have live Fermenting kombucha cultures on a truck for eight hours going across state lines. It's more complicated than just, you know, hey, let's wrap up that pallet and shove it on a truck and it'll be here in two days, kind of thing. So was a very interesting experience. Yeah.
1: And there's really a lot to dive into there. So when you bought this, I'm just trying to repeat it and summarize it basically. Please. So you bought it, you closed first week of January, right? Correct. And the intention at first Went like, on closing date, you were like, we're going to run a multi-state business. Correct. So, we're five months later. At what point did that change?
2: By February. <laughs> really? So, <It's laughs> like, three weeks, really. It, it, it did not take long to figure out. Like, you do all the diligence you can pre-closing, and you learn everything you think you can learn to make a good valuation, a good business plan, a good, like, transition approach. Like, there's a lot that you do to prepare when you go to buy a company. And then reality happens, like... Is the, what's the, the boxing reference that like everybody's got to plan until they get, until punched, they in the get punched in the face? Until Yeah. Right? You start, like, unwinding costing. Like, all right, I've seen this p and I know it's, like, cost structure, but, like, I haven't been on the back-end the inventory tool and, like, unbundled the bill of materials and found out, oh, cool, you pay 3X for labels what we pay based on volume, but I don't want to ship labels from Ohio to North Carolina. What do I, like, you start doing all this math and, like, the numbers start growing really, 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 really quickly. Like, if this was a... 2% or 1% swing on the PL to pull off a relocation, we wouldn't have done it. It was like a upper single digits, nearly double digit swing in that wow. operating profit of the business. So if you move a, a p of a multi-million dollar revenue company by 7%, 8%, 9% of the net, mm-hmm. that's a massive decision it's a that it's worth allocating capital to that experience to do it the right way to take care of people and then to execute it well. And that's what we did. It didn't take long to to unwind post-closing.
1: I think I want to to dive even way further into this because this is pretty interesting. So, okay, so you're doing due diligence. What was the integration plan with due diligence? It sounds like you had a full plan built together. 20 days in, you scrapped it. So, like, what was the first plan?
2: First plan was just integrate marketing. Just have our marketing team replace their marketing team. Okay. Leave accounting in place, leave operations, customer service, some tweaks and some improvements, like some support, but like generally, not a whole lot changed except for maybe the marketing function. And other than that, it was kind of wait and see, stand alone, let it run.
1: Uh, let it run for how long? Like forever, or so like, we, was this like knew, a six-month thing?
2: Uh, we knew we were going into taking on an eight-month lease in the facility, so we had time to kind of sort out what that next step was. We had opinions about the practicalities of the facility and different constraints to growth. Those opinions evolved and got solidified in different ways through that first month. Mm -hmm. All right. So the fork in the road became chart a course to doubling down on multi-state or chart a course to relocating. So we had a a square footage constraint that we knew was a constraint. We didn't understand every aspect of it. Explain. Shelf space, ability to, to turn out units in the square footage, ability to add product lines in the square footage versus... To be able to do that here in Ohio. Yeah. So like knowing that the space is is heavily utilized is one thing. Knowing we functionally can't bring this new product line that's been out of stock for months and we have supplier issues, we can't go develop that product line in-house because of the space, whereas in Ohio we just could. And we're going to turn on a multi-hundred-thousand-dollar product line because we have physical space here in Northeast Ohio that we didn't have in North Carolina. So just, yeah. when you pr- start putting that stuff into the equation, it starts adding up.
1: And I think to clarify... For the listener. Kelsey's vertical integration involves manufacturing a lot.
2: Yeah, sorry. So, so John knows this for those that are listening. So we have an office here in Akron. We also have a full production fulfillment facility. So we pick, pack, and ship all of our own items. We already have a food-related business. So we had packaging equipment that would toll down. Tolling is the act of taking a large amount of food and packaging it into a small bag for a small amount of food. So here's an example. There's a tolling operation that needs to happen for the cultures for health that has... Itself, just out, just bringing that function in-house from a vendor to equipment we already had in Akron, Ohio, we could hire like two FTEs Mm -hmm. just on the monthly savings of that one operating cost. FTEs is
1: full-time employees. Yeah. Okay.
2: That's okay. I can get behind all this. If you start making this list of all these items, you end up with this swing of seven points on net profit on a decent-sized e-commerce business, and instead of looking for leases in North Carolina, you're figuring out. Kind a of multi-state move.
1: move yeah. yeah, are you comfortable diving into the numbers on that deal? Roughly.
2: All right.
1: So, what would be interesting to know, and I'm just curious, yeah. is like what the seller was running at profit wise, what you projected at, and then yeah. where where you got after the move? Because I feel like that probably went from like, oh, they're running a decent business, to we're going to run it better, to be like, okay. <laughs> yeah.
2: So they were running, call it ten percent. Yeah. Net margins. And we had kind of performative forecasted like maybe a little bit of growth there, 11, 12. Like, there was some, a few tweaks. Like All right, a few of these key drivers, we know operationally, Facebook ads, our ability to buy postage at our bulk rates versus what they were buying as a smaller operator, kind of some nuts and bolts things. We're going to move it from like, instead of 10 to 11, 12, we're going to move it from 10 to 17, 18, 19 on the same amount of revenue. Yeah, that's incredible. And we probably have better revenue growth opportunities like at a product line, couldn't be done in that existing space. Vendors couldn't do it reliably. We can do it here. And so it'll bump the top line by 10, 15%. Mm-hmm. And that and that margin will fall to the bottom line.
1: So what exactly were the things that you gained by bringing it up to Akron?
2: We pay a very, very low cost in rent. So when we think about like vertical integration and like all the accretive nature of the machine we're trying to build, we pay very, very, very low rent on the building that we're in warehouse space in Raleigh, North Carolina is just more expensive than Akron, Ohio. It's just, it's demographics. Mm -hmm. Salaries for office staff in Northeast Ohio are different than salaries in like an up and coming area like the Raleigh-Durham area, North Carolina. So those are kind of the big cost drivers of space and people. Just efficiency though, of our ability to do the fulfillment operation. Of that PL versus the consolidated PL is like anything else. You just, through scale, you achieve efficiency. Our customer service team ended up absorbing one full time equivalent employee with no increase in hours. So, mm-hmm. as much as I like to think that we have like great performance management for our customer service team, obviously they had more time in their day because now they handle an extra X hundred tickets a month and there's no overtime involved. So, I don't know if they were playing Minesweeper or mm-hmm. if they just got more done in the day, but one way or another, like, The customer service is still handled, and we didn't have to hire anybody because we had the bandwidth.
1: Now I just want to dive into the customer service side of things because I think that's interesting. So we have seven people? We have seven
3: total, yeah. Yeah. Five
1: remote. Yeah, and we've been integrating software to track, and basically they're just nowhere near us at all. But is your customer service still remote? Because it was remote for months.
2: Just this week, we put a plan in motion to bring the last of them back in-house on at least a partial regular basis and how many are there there are today four in-house and four more coming back in-house the ones that were we left remote thus far were those that were on the phone frequently we now have access to some more space in the building that we're in that we're going to build into a small call center space mm-hmm. that is down the hall from our existing office so it's on campus shared kitchen area shared conference room space but just they're not on the phone right next to people that are working at their desk all day yeah
1: that's good that's good so you added a ton of work to these guys. They weren't able to track it. What systems do you have in place to track so, your yeah
2: site? really popular e commerce customer service tools? Gorgeous, G O R G I A S. Anybody doing e commerce probably knows who they are. So think of like a Zendesk or any other popular ticketing software. But in e commerce, they're kind of like the Shopify. Like the you kind of start there as a standard answer, kind of best in class place to start for most people. Hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. cool. Okay, so you brought you brought everyone up. How much did the move cost? Like, what does that even take? You said 17, 18. Maybe we don't have to Yeah. that. How many employees
2: did you get rid of?
1: What did it look like?
2: We consolidated the entire fulfillment, assembly, and production function into our fulfillment, assembly, and production function. So fulfillment being pick, pack, and ship, which we have an internal building model that's like square footage and picking, packing, and shipping. So if you pick three items, pack one order, and ship it out for postage, there's an economic model for that. We've integrated all that into an existing infrastructure that works. Assembly, we take four or five or six disparate things and kit them together into one finished skew, a kit of items, and then production, actually making stuff. So in our food business, we're tolling down bulk food. In the fermentation business, we're fermenting and harvesting cultures and then maybe dehydrating or freeze drying them. So that was the, probably the biggest change was adding in some of the fermentation technology of like, we had three clean rooms built. Well... Three production rooms, whether or not they qualify as an FDA clean room, <laughs> I don't. Not my, not my job to solve. At least one of them does. I, f- I forget which one it is, but we sorted out. We could allocate the space for those three differently and accommodate all the fermentation needs in one of those existing rooms.
3: So, how big is the building you're in now that you have the ability to to bring all that in?
2: So we're in a building, you can Google it, it's called Canal Place. It's this multi-million square foot complex that used to be a BF Goodrich tire plant. And the developer has really gone in with this like multi-use thesis of like redeveloping the space. So right now, across the hall from our office, they're building Class A apartment units. We're going to put a nice restaurant downstairs. Our office space is like regular run-of-the-mill, 10, 12-buck-a-foot office space. Our warehouse is technically one grade below ground. We pay $2 a foot for our warehouse space. We started in twenty thousand, but we landlocked forty thousand where the landlord really couldn't lease it to anybody else. And so over time, we leased another ten thousand, then thirty thousand, and we made a deal with the landlord to do some improvements and build those production rooms. And so we've been taking this unwanted, unused industrial space, really fixing it up: paint, lighting, bathrooms. Doesn't cost a ton of capex, but we're paying two buck a foot rent on sixty thousand square feet. That same cost of space in Raleigh, North Carolina is 15 bucks a foot. Yeah, I get that we're like totally one floor below ground level, but it's a warehouse. Nobody knows. There's no windows anyways. The work environment's fine for like warehouse work. It's the same as any other warehouse anybody would be in. No, we don't have like full rack height ceiling where we can't get double-stacked pallet racks. But at 2 bucks a foot, it works just can't fine. Can't complain, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. We'll never get the Amazon robots to pick our stuff, but that wasn't in the business plan in the short term anyways.
3: So how much room do you have left to grow in?
2: That's an interesting question. I don't know. I'm sure there's some efficiency to squeeze out of the current space. I feel like everything down there, when I go check it out, it's kind of spread out right now. That decision is probably a few steps away from me. I'm sure if I said, hey, team, we need to bring in this many more SKUs, we'd kind of figure it out.
3: There are other spaces
2: in the building where we could, again, kind of expand on campus and go multi-building or multi-floor if we had to and get more low-cost space. So when we first moved to this canal place building, that's part of the dream was like, hey, we're going to keep growing at this crazy pace Signing a five-year lease is going to prohibit us from doing that. How do we get the best of both worlds? Yeah, we have to re-up our term every time we take more space and stretch out the end date by five years. But to keep moving
3: at this pace, it's a super flexible relationship with the landlord. That's interesting. That's so you potentially have. I mean, how many floors? <laughs> there's got to be it's, it's a million square feet. No, so you endless essentially. There's sure. multiple buildings. I mean, it's huge.
1: Okay. It's, yeah. Well, it's where it bounces.
2: Oh, all right, all right. And so some of it's finished yeah. Class A, like there's a law firm with wow. like, glass doors and you know wood wood floors yeah. and like great lighting and like it looks like twenty dollar foot Class A office space. And then I pay you know four hundred dollars <laughs> a month for the new call center because it's like old C class office space that we're going to put a cube farm in. Like yeah. it works for our need. I forgot it was down the hall and we wanted to bring customer service home and like great cool we'll call the landlord add to the lease four hundred dollars a month new space.
3: Does it make any logistical issues with you being one floor below ground as far as, yeah, but just logistics, trucking and all that kind of? We actually have a
2: better dock access. We have two now
3: as long as the elevator, the freight elevator works all
2: the time. We have we have one direct access and one that's freight elevator based. The bigger issue is just old building and all the sewer drains end up going through our floor. And we have special backflow insurance and stuff like other than that now. Okay.
1: So there's a tangible risk in being underground. With all of your inventory and water.
3: Oh, for sure.
2: <laughs> I'm, I'm, pretty, I'm pretty sure our insurance agent can tell you all about it.
3: Yeah, I'm just, I'm you know, I'm sitting here like... I can sell you a backflow promoter. <laughs> yeah, we've got some products <laughs> to help you, Kelsey. Yeah, I bet you do. <laughs> oh, that's
1: funny. All right, man, that that's pretty interesting. So you guys are going to be there for a minute. So you moved your team up. Currently, there's no one in South Carolina. Yeah, the North Carolina
2: team... Two have relocated full-time to become work as 365 employees. And the last two team members that are on a severance package are finishing up the transition like this week and next. And, of course, we're covering like, like, all the expenses and room and board and travel and whatnot, but they're like really finishing that this week and next. What would be interesting to me,
1: I'm sure, Brandon, and I'm sure to most listeners, is why the severance package?
2: We want to do the right thing by people? Like okay. We didn't go into this with a plan of, Hey, my name's Kelsey, and this is Justin, and... We're going to uproot this. Yeah, that, that wasn't the plan. It was, right. hey, I'm Kelsey, this is Justin, we're going to figure this out. And I was like, oh, like, you guys are great people, but there's a huge economic problem here that, like, the right thing for the business as a whole is for it to not be here. So we want to incentivize you guys to help us make it a smooth transition. We want to be good people to you and give you, like, a soft landing and, and try to help you on to what's next. But that wasn't what we came in with. And so now that we've got, like, an opportunity to do this, we want to do it the right way. How do you feel like it went? Generally pretty smooth. I think there was probably one or two bumps. I mean, it's, it's life. Companies make decisions and people's lives are impacted. So we try to be polite about that. And yeah, what, respectful. Yeah. yeah I, I, if I was on the receiving end of that kind of circumstance, like, okay, might not like it. It is what it is. That at least be treated well through that process. Yeah, and you guys feel like you did a good job? For sure, 100%. Yeah. I've got no problem with any of the relationships mm-hmm. and thinking that – I don't think anybody's going to go on Glassdoor and write some terrible review of how we wrapped up the relationship. Yeah. I want to be able to be proud of that.
1: And I think – I mean, just even though you sounds like you did a great job, I'm sure you learned a lot of lessons. Would, were some of those lessons you took away from that?
2: You never know what's going to happen 30 days into that new mm-hmm. acquisition plan, and things mm-hmm. don't always quite go go according. I think we learned something new on every acquisition, yeah. probably have yeah. similar circumstances. So like your purchase doc template, like there's a permanent edit every time you like buy something oh, new, yeah. like a new due diligence item yeah. or a new rep and warranty, whatever whatever it might be. Here's a like super tangible one for econ people, like... We royally messed up a few settings in Amazon Seller Central. On the transition, we lost X number of days of sales for listings being down. And Amazon held our money for X amount of days, which is like a working capital crunch. So like, there was some stupid stuff. All right, cool. Owned knowledge. Next time we go to do that, we have a better playbook about, all right, don't press that button. Press Mm -hmm. this one. Yeah, there's definitely items like that.
1: Yeah. What did the severance look like for people? Like, was it percentage or flat?
2: Varied based on their role, their tenure, and then what we were asking for them to do. So, some people always, say, hey, today's your last day, and here's a soft landing. because I want to be a good person. Other people was, this is what we're doing, this is why we're doing it. And I'm sorry that that maybe impacts you, that you have to have a career change, but here's the opportunities. You can have this relocation package to Ohio. This compensation, these roles and responsibilities, but you may or may not want to uproot your life. So if that's not in the cards for you, I understand. If it is, like, is, let's talk about all the great ways you could join 365. It's not in the cards for you. Here's some incentives to do the things to make this mutually profitable for you going to find your next venture and the company to be successful in the transition. And then I think the target was like two to three months for most people where they might have had a PTO balance. They might have had you know, X amount of years of tenure with the company. We felt like giving them sixty to ninety days was a good amount of time for like a career person or even a laborer that's doing warehouse work to be able to go find a new job. As you know, we can talk about this later, but labor market's super tight right now. Yeah. People are having a hard time finding work if no, they want it. Yeah. So I felt like sixty to ninety days in most cases, again, depending on some details there, was like a more than fair way to say goodbye to somebody. Yeah. I, I hope they find a job the next week and they could, you know, double dip. Yeah. That'd be sweet.
1: How many people came up of, it was 16? Yes. Is that more or less than what you wanted? We wanted three. Yeah. Yeah, that'd be tough. I mean, two to me seems like, that ain't bad. I mean, to have people move, like, from...
2: I mean, we can make all the Cleveland weather jokes we want, but like... Right. <laughs> um,
1: from one of the Carolinas <laughs> to Northeast Ohio, that ain't bad.
2: <laughs> yeah. We were selling the 365 culture and mission pretty hard. Mm-hmm. And I think, as an opportunity set, if you're working as an employee at any level in an 18-person company in North Carolina, and you come to Akron, and you see a 70-something, 70 75, 80-person company in 60,000 square feet instead of in 2,000 square feet, you start to see like the logos on the wall, and hear some of the stories, and meet some of the people, and you find out that just one year ago it was you know half of that. Like, there's something I think persuasive about that. I do think yeah. it was a compelling offer. As far as a next step in people's careers of there's a lot more growth on the other side of this door than had Plan A worked out. Had Plan A worked out, being a long-term Cultures for Health employee, I don't think in North Carolina is as attractive as being a long-term 365 employee in Akron. Mm -hmm.
3: Have those relocations worked out well so far?
2: Yeah, so one was sooner. One happened in March, and one is literally like this week. Oh, nice. Crazy. The fun part about that, though, is like you get to really have that kind of, when, when you go from this satellite business that was operating on its own to now we're truly going to integrate it, and it's all, all one team, all of your HR recruiting culture questions, like you've literally worked with this person, Yeah, they felt like they were a bit of a satellite or an island in this other brand, and now you're bringing them under one umbrella. But you already know exactly what you're getting. You get a, a trial, if you will, if you're going to extend that offer to somebody. So. We were super impressed with the caliber of all the employees we inherited. There was two or three we really wanted to have, and we got two of them. Yeah. And those others were great, too, just that there wasn't a role that made sense to fill. Right. Yeah, I get that.
1: Yeah. All right. So you're in e-commerce, so we got to talk about it. Which one? The pandemic. <laughs> what
2: about it? Five years of e-commerce growth in 12 months?
1: I mean, is that basically how it went?
2: Those are the numbers being published. There's some questions about how much of that is... Permanent, right? What consumer shopping behavior? Like, okay, you had to go buy X online, and maybe you still want to, but there's still the bounce back behavior. I also want to go to a local store Mm -hmm. and try on the shirt and have this shopping experience. And like, you could pick up bajillion examples of where there will be some bounce back. Yes, it accelerated things. More people are going to have Doordash, Uber Eats, or Amazon Prime, or something that was delivered. And be more likely to grow. Yes, I think it impacted the long-term growth rate and accelerated it. All right. So I don't think hundred percent of it sticks. Maybe seventy or eighty percent of it sticks.
1: Yeah. Last episode we talked about gas shortages and just sort of our contingency planning for when shit hits the fan. Yep. So do you guys have like, hey, this is starting to not stick, or we're trending down? What's like, what's the plan?
2: I think the answer to that you got to probably look a few steps back at our strategy versus like e-com as a broad brushstrokes category. So if I said home services in a recession, maybe less people pay to get their gutters cleaned or their house pressure washed or their lawn fertilized, home services. But plumbing, like we need the toilet to work, we need the water to run, we need our heat on in the winter. So like there's a different amount of durability or defensibility to different home services businesses than to others. I would argue the same about Product categories and business models with an e-com. If you have a hit product on Amazon called a KN95 face mask, really good April May last year, mm-hmm. may not sell any <laughs> come this fall. And those are obviously it's absolutely a black and white example of like product demand. But when I look at our brand strategies, so like emergency food banner year last year, the market grew and the market will contract market is forever bigger but i i can't create pandemic levels of demand again because people aren't as afraid about the food supplies they were last spring now they have this product in their house they're taken care of they feel protected they're they're satisfied customers our month over month revenue is drastically better than a year or two prior but i'll never get back to pandemic level demand in that business
3: mm-hmm.
2: cultures for health sells the products you need to make your own sourdough bread Last year on Instagram, about this time, April, May, like sourdough was having a moment. My wife was like, I want to make bread. She's never said that in her life. Suddenly she <laughs> thought it was cool. And you go on Google Trends and it spiked last year. Will it come back down? Like, I don't know. Yes, maybe. Like, products will have demand trends. Product categories will have demand trends. Like, I would not want to own a men's dress shirt company last year. Like, people were working from home and they were buying athleisure and sweatshirts, right? So I think about less as like the e com boom and contraction more as how durable, defensible is your business model, the products that you have, how you acquire customers, the new products you develop to bring them back to repeat purchase from you. There's some strategic stuff. If you buy a good asset, you can enjoy the boom, and then even if you have a contraction, like you'll still be fine.
1: Yeah. I feel like Bill D'Alessandro, he calls it pills and potions, right? Lotions and potions. I Lotions think. and yeah. potions. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. Yep. So, that, I mean, that's a pretty easy concept to understand. So, for the listener, yep. what's the
2: rough... Three sixty five. Yeah. We have a a post on this on our website. You can go check it out. It's writing up top, and it's the article titled E-commerce Brands. So it's kind of how we define what e-commerce brands means to us. So you mentioned Bill. He and I are well acquainted for as similar as we are, as far as what we view as the desirable characteristics of a good business, and for as much as somebody on the outside would lump us together as like the same business model, I'll bet you if Bill and I looked at 100 teasers we might overlap once or twice on like going and chasing down a company. There's there's so many criteria of my lens versus his where there's some overlap, but there are also some distinct nuances. There's other great like portfolio acquirers, people doing hold co roll-ups in the space. Here's our take on it, which is a little nuanced and I think unique because I haven't yet met anybody else. that's kind of mashed it up the way we have. So we want a brand. So a product that is branded, not a commodity item. So, I had somebody reach out this week that had an office furniture item. Like, it's hard to brand an office furniture item, Like, it's just furniture, right? So, we want an identifiable brand. That brand should serve identifiable customers. We need to identify customer avatars or market segments and really figure out the psychology and persuasion of why somebody's buying this stuff. We're looking for not an, a customer concentration in the form of Amazon. So, if you have 20, 30, maybe 35, 40%, of your sales on Amazon FBA. It's kind of about the limit for us. We really want that core direct-to-consumer channel. I'll take, I love an omni-channel business. Wholesale, great. Amazon, great. eBay, Walmart, Jet, like, love it. We're actually building out more infrastructure internally to let us do more cross-channel. We want the anchor to be direct-to-consumer on our own website with Facebook and Google ads, capturing email addresses, et cetera. So those market-based brands selling predominantly D2C with kind of the size constraints economically that we can afford to acquire, that's really our sandbox. So somebody like Bill might say, hey, I want a potions and lotions. Six SKUs, small, lightweight, easy to ship. I say, yeah, that's super attractive. Valley Food Storage, we ship like 60-pound boxes of emergency food. Doesn't meet that criteria. I love that barrier to entry because you can't just go spin that up tomorrow and ship that out. It's hard, hard to do. Uh, our Nicky's Diapers brand, 7,000 SKUs in the warehouse. You want to go compete with us? Cool. Good luck having the product selection that we have. Is that a harder business to manage and it takes longer to move that inventory? We turn it slower? Yes. So I look at what those aspects are of any one opportunity as is that business in and of itself a good investment? Is it a moat? Is it defensible? E-commerce brand overarching though, omni-channel brand
3: and customer in mind, not a product in mind. So I guess it might backpedal a little bit into this, but you have these, these smaller brands, it's not smaller brands, but you know, it's not it's not Amazon they basics.
2: They are smaller brands. I, I like to say like we give a brand at home where to zoom out I don't want to interrupt but this mm-hmm. is a, a good riff to go on. So part of my whole like shtick or thesis on the space is that fifty years ago, post-World War II, the American consumer class was born, and consumer spending drove the last 67 years of American growth and our like Dominance in like monetary policy and global economics and everything, right? And that was predicated on people coming from war, had a bunch of babies, and we had the advent of mass media, radio, TV, and billboards. And a few big brands, Procter & Gamble, Johnson & Johnson, started to deploy advertising at mass scale to drive consumers to big box stores to go buy a large number of products from a small number of brands. What's now happened is we have podcasts and YouTube and Facebook and Amazon and Instagram and all these great channels that's flipped that funnel upside down. And now we will instead of having a small number of big brands, we have a big number of small brands, there will forever be some niche sunglasses company, maple syrup brand, men's t-shirt for guys who go kiteboarding, like every little niche you could ever have for any market segment is now possible that will have an enduring lifespan if it can find a permanent home. So if an owner operator starts up a business and they're the starter entrepreneur, we want to buy that business if it's a quality business that fits our criteria is that long-term platform for brands of a size where that's not possible. Like Cheerios will probably exist for a long, long time because General Mills like they establish market dominance. The next niche version of breakfast cereal that's keto gluten-free, whatever the, the trendy thing is that somebody said build a business around, it might only ever be a $8 million revenue company or $3 million revenue company, whatever it is. If it's, a, if it's a sustainable business that has an enduring value proposition and can identify customer segments and do really good marketing and like build a brand, that business needs a place to live for forever. And I just think that the world now is many, 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 many more small brands and many fewer big brands that dominate. That's our like hot take on that.
3: Okay. So with that in mind, it's actually kind of ties into it actually. You, for Wilson, for example, let's say, right? So we're local. We only service local. We service like a 30-mile radius. Yep. So marketing for us is kind of straightforward. Like I market to (laughs) Northeast Ohio and that's it. Now, you as multiple small brands, how does that look for a non-e-commerce operator as far as marketing goes? How do you keep that idea of a small local brand? You're not the Amazon. You know, like we talked about earlier, people like to buy local. How do you portray that and how do you keep that appearance to the public? while also marketing, I'm assuming, nationwide?
2: Yeah, so we look at this through a couple lenses. One is bifurcating the understanding of demand capture and demand creation. I would argue that, by and large, trade businesses, home services businesses are in the demand capture business. I need a plumber, I call a plumber. It's probably hard or harder to go convince somebody to want to call for routine maintenance. They either decide they're going to or or they don't. You're in the demand capture business. Most e-commerce businesses are one or the other. I love that there are some of both. So I can run interruptive Facebook ads to create demand by doing really great storytelling in the news feed of telling you about this problem you didn't know you had and this magical solution you've always wanted. I just had to make you aware of it. And I can move you through the marketing funnel. You might view that ad, go to the website, and not check out. Three days later, remember the brand name, type it into a Google search, and click on our brand name on Google. I started with demand creation, Facebook ad, interruption, didn't know you needed it. And I moved to demand capture. You guys have like a different way of looking at it. you got to figure out, I saw the Wilson Plumbing truck, demand creation, I guess, kind of some awareness, like a upper funnel metrics of like how many people know we exist. Demand capture. Do I type in Wilson Plumbing? Do I type in plumber near me? Do I just call John because I have a cell phone number, right? So like, <laughs> there's a different funnel there. Where we think about demand creation is really in two lights. One is direct response advertising. So for us, that's marketing on modern platforms like Facebook and Trying to go to things like TikTok and other channels, but like creating demand from thin air through storytelling, identifying avatars with their problems, their demographics and psychographics, and then our end product that solves those things in an aspirational way. There's that. And then there's our media company strategy, which sits above demand creation advertising. So, direct response ads is predicated on like conversion metrics. I need to have a certain return on ad spend, certain cost per acquisition. I'm trying to build a funnel that I can solve mathematically. If I put enough spend into the machine, it comes back out the other end profitable in the long term through LTV. I think about the media company strategy is what sits on top of that and really builds, like, super top-of-funnel awareness. So I might run an ad about, like, we'll go to Cultures for Health for sourdough bread. I might run an ad about how to make your own sourdough bread. Buy my thing because you want to do it. It's cool. It's trending. You can make this great charcuterie board and impress your friends at your neighborhood gathering. Like I, I can do storytelling around the act of family time and baking with your kids. Like we can, we can tell stories about why you want to do this and show you a product that solves the need through direct response advertising. What's even better is if instead of asking you to buy the product, we go on a podcast and talk about the health benefits of fermented foods. And we build up a massive audience of people just learning about that stuff. And then that trickles down through direct response advertising or even better demand capture. People just type in our website. They find us on Google. They join our email list and we harvest that demand But truly creating like real top of funnel awareness for us is through the media company strategy of like hosting podcasts, having a Facebook group, having blogs that are really not conversion oriented, but like how to or best of or very educational in nature, kind of focusing on customer success, less on our product, more on like the avatars and the problems. I think for you guys, I think I'm stealing this from Gary Vee, but my hot take would be like you should run local YouTube ads on like how to not hire a plumber, how to do everything yourself and build up so much credibility and so much awareness and so much like authority that you know darn well, most people don't want to do it and they'd rather call you guys. How do you just be sure that when the time is ready, they want to allow you to capture that demand and like not price shop and not you know take the appointments available at eight because you guys aren't available till nine like building that brand authority. Harder to do on a nuts and bolts problem like my toilet won't flush. Than building aspirational awareness of some food product or lifestyle brand or widget I can buy on the internet.
3: It's, it's interesting just to look at that. Even you know, like you said, the demand comes to us. We really just have to figure out how to get them to find. It's listen. almost like
1: there's a there's an active demand. I think yeah. of like our restoration business. Like the restoration business is kind of a funny business because the demand is out there. Yep. Like there is, let's Two say, disasters happen. Right. Yeah. Like let's say that there's a hundred million dollars every single day in Akron, Ohio in disasters. Yep. And all that there's you th- have to be... So not my warehouse
2: flooding. We're good.
1: Yeah, right. <laughs> so all, so that all you have to be is somehow able to capture that already existing. You don't have to create anything. Yep. You just have to tap in somehow to an existing problem.
2: In e-commerce, there's businesses predicated on demand capture, businesses predicated on demand creation, and then businesses that are a blend of the two. Mm-hmm. We really want to be a blend of the two. What I What I have traditionally viewed as a... Lower quality, less defensible business is a business predicated on demand capture because you end up with a a bit of a race to the bottom. Somebody else can drop ship it cheaper. Somebody else can list it on Amazon with more spend. Somebody else can fill in the blank competitively. So in e-commerce, with the level playing field of Amazon Prime, it's not a very defensible model. Demand creation is also hard. like Convincing somebody to come buy your pair of shoes versus going to the store and buying like. It's a different set of problems. You kind of choose mm-hmm. which set of problems you want to tackle in your business. I love buying a mature enough brand that's old enough. Talking earlier about the age of a yeah. business, where we have some brand reputation, we have some authority, we have assets that let us do advertising about customer success. We can build a media strategy around kind of hosting the party that our customers are all "quote unquote" attending in their mind about who they are as a person and the activities that they like to partake in and the products they buy. And then sure, we gotta run performance ads, we gotta capture the demand, we gotta run emails, we gotta do sales. I love having a bit of both.
3: Do you have any brands that feed off each other? Like we have cut and dry feeds off of Wilson's work. Does anything happen like that in e-commerce or the brands you're operating?
2: Everybody asks me that all the time. I've always (laughs) thought it was a great idea. I have not seen it work. I guess my best answer to that is like if you have a favorite maker of a shirt, which is an easy example. So he actually has a great example. I'm wearing an Untucket dress shirt. These were cool, like, six years ago when they first came out. So I was
3: the only guy that had one. <laughs> I was at the original
2: store in Soho. I, th- I thought it was great because, like, I never liked tucking my shirt in. Now everybody's ripped it off and everybody's making one, right? Like, you can go to Banana Republic and buy, like, an untucked length dress shirt. Here's my problem, though. They named the company Untuck It. I get the direct mail piece in, in the mail, and on the front is a woman wearing a dress and a right. guy wearing pants. Like, right. you don't want pants from Untuck It. You right. want a shirt meant to be untucked. So, likewise, if you got a mailer from them about a belt. Like, I don't know, I want your shirt. I don't want your belt. Whether it's the same brand or different brand, it's very hard to have cross-brand congruity. You get your mail and it says, you know, Honda owners, special insurance offer from, from Liberty Mutual. It's like, okay, you sent the same one to Toyota owners yesterday. Do I really care? Like, I understand it's affinity marketing. Does it actually work? At some scale, it probably does. Have I seen it play out in e-commerce where I should be able to email my list about your product and you should be able to email yours about mine, it's easier said than done. It's hard to pull off. So as much as I have fantasized about that and everybody asks about it, and I've even tried it in a few cases where I was like, oh, this is going to make all sense in the world. I just haven't seen it play out at a scale that's
1: commercially viable. I want to dive a little bit backwards into the content thing. So we talked about this with James Camp okay. and we talked about... How you know? My big question was why not roll up ecom, and we got into this whole discussion. And he said that ecom scales very well, like Costco, as you scale. And then he said that that click, that purchase, is worth more to the e-commerce company than to the content company. Am I saying that part right?
2: I'm following you. Go ahead. Okay. Yep.
1: So I'm super into what you basically just described. Where you moved up funnel. You said yep. you had some podcasts. You said you have a Facebook group. I'm sure some websites of some type?
2: We do have websites, yes.
1: Talk to me about it. Like, I'm, I'm, yeah. I'm down mm-hmm. for this. This is sweet.
2: So, i had some qualifiers on like, content website and e-commerce are both very large categories. Right, right. If you're in the content website business, your goal is to generate as much revenue per user as possible. So, for every page view or session on your website, you need a business model of getting those eyeballs to your site, your content, probably through SEO because it will bring you visitors for free if you're good at it. And then you need to monetize them. So, The lowest common denominator, in my opinion, for e-commerce is monetizing through, like, Amazon affiliates. So if I go to a a blogger and we say, we'll pay you 10% commission on the sale of product X, what I'm fighting against in their mind is, one, dealing with me and having a relationship and an invoice. There's a whole process, business process there. Or they can just turn on Amazon Associates. Amazon converts better than my website. Amazon has more customers than I do. Amazon has Prime shipping. Amazon has card-on-file for all these Prime members, like the revenue per user for an outbound click to Amazon associates is almost always gonna be better than an outbound click to some other brand's website. So you think through like the value chain of how can a content brand monetize, if it's through e-commerce, if I'm reviewing pocket knives, probably you get the most revenue per user sending pocket knife visitors to Amazon to buy pocket knives than to a pocket knife company, probably. And if you run a content site, you've probably done testing and you have math to figure out based on your goals and your business model, like what business do you want to be in? You can go up funnel and say, all right, like I want to build a content site for services businesses. So I buy Akron Plumber Reviews.com and I go to you and I go to all your competitors and I like, I hold you hostage. Hey, good news. I rank number one for Akron Plumber Reviews. I'm actually not a non-biased source, even though my website says I am. And I'm going to hold hostage my rankings. If you want to be number one, you got to pay me more than the other guys. i have a little auction. I'm going to let you guys participate and decide who wants to pay the most, be the quote unquote number one in Akron. That's a business model. Of Do I want to charge you on a click basis, on a paper lead basis? Do I want to just charge you just to have the ranking and like the results are what they are? So when you're in the content business, you can decide where you want to extract value in the value chain and how you want to charge for it. I think what James is getting at with content and e-commerce is probably product shopping and things that are like comparison sites or blogs or reviews or content sites around a niche or industry and how they choose to monetize. I think the same Example goes for any vertical. Home services, e-commerce, software reviews. Like you Google the wrong thing for like software companies and you end up on a review site that just compares software. And all they're doing is having an affiliate link from their website to another software company. So yes, every content site needs a monetization strategy. And based on the industry they're in, they're going to have a different model to monetize those users.
1: So you own... A part of your content strategy is owning these Facebook groups, owning these podcasts that you guys are putting out and you're using yourself as sponsors. I guess can you walk through that a little bit deeper?
2: So that strategy is probably about 10% deployed to where I want it. Okay. When, when did you start? I wrote the original piece last year. I and mean, we're we're actively hiring today for the person who's going to own that role. We've had fits and starts of the deployment of that at scale at a way in which I am proud of. We've had elements of it that are deployed. The strategy is kind of the vision or the destination. I think we have a lot of work to do to get there. So let's go to like Nikki's Diapers. Nikki's Diapers owns a Facebook group called Nikki's Diapers Chatter. It's got, I don't know, 13,000 or 17,000. Like a lot of these moms.
1: Did are, it start? Did you guys start that group from scratch? Or were well, you bought it? Came it came with, with the, the brand. Business. Oh, yeah, okay. The business. That's sweet. So yeah. that... To an e-commerce brand, I mean, a Facebook group is – that's awesome, right?
2: That's Uh, like a captive – It it, it can be. So, like, one, a Facebook group has a a double-edged sword. It can turn into a customer service problem. Right. For sure. Two, you might say, like, oh, this is a great strategy. I'm going to go message every other Facebook group related to my industry. I'm going to to buy their Facebook group for X amount of dollars. Hosting the party and having your community that, like, hangs out in and around a place on social media that is attached to your name – is, I believe, as like a persuasive human being, a good thing. I believe it's a good part of a brand. I don't think it's a performance marketer. It's an easy funnel to solve for. I don't know that I can go pay X for a group, post X amount of links, and see Y in revenue that like solves my return on investment. I'm sure I can put together a spreadsheet that would hypothecate how that works. I don't know how often that actually plays out at scale. So the media company strategy idea is I have the podcast, have the... Facebook groups have the long-tail blog results that are maybe less commercial intent and a bit more, like, success-based. And you own these blogs or these other people's blogs? Ours. Okay. Yep. Whether or not we brand them as the brand or as an extension of the brand, we'll have a different strategy based on kind of our position in the market and what we're trying to accomplish there. That, to me, is just part of the overall, like, build a brand. Once you have a brand, demand... Harvesting demand capture is easier when you're the bigger fish in the pond. Mm-hmm.
1: That is pretty interesting. I think well you and I texted about this the other day. But I think that the whole content plus e com thing is sweet. If, if you can do the it, like I
2: I wrote a whole piece on this on our website you can go find it, but like why does Red Bull pay thirty million dollars to have a guy jump out of a space capsule? Is he drinking their product? Like, no, he didn't. Like, yeah, their logos on there. They're the best media company in the world. And you never see their product in anything that they do. Mm-hmm. Taco Bell did some co-branded hotel in California. They didn't make any money at the hotel. Like, they just wanted a, a press release about their cool thing. Mm-hmm. There's a growing list if you follow WebSmith on Twitter. He's got a company called 2PM, very much at the cutting edge of like modern content and commerce thinking. And he has done long-form articles and analysis of brands where the content side of the business... And the commerce side of the business are one and the same. One of the biggest examples is why Glossier, women's makeup brand in New York, started as a blog about makeup. She built an entire multi-hundred million dollar venture-backed humongous, I don't I may mean, be getting the numbers wrong, but like a big, meaningful e-commerce brand of women's makeup off of her like hobby blog. Yeah. And Red Bull has a magazine. Like so yes, I actually think that the convergence of those things matters. That's the difference to me between a brand and we sell. Desk organizers on Amazon. Mm-hmm. They're both quote unquote e commerce. When you get into like these industry debates, one to me is worth a whole lot more than the other as far as like a value proposition of a durable business, having a community around the thing you're passionate about that understands its customers versus I have this thing you can buy.
1: I think that's kind of exciting personally. Like this idea that you can have a product and then it's just an accumulation of advantages and yeah. it's like it's moat building. You get to go sure. in every day and sort of build this thing that is harder and harder to jump over.
2: Brand as moat is one of these like super hard to intelligently debate or measure topics. Oh, yeah. Like how many guys do you talk to about tell their company? Oh, I got a great brand in the area. Yeah. Like, how do you measure that? What does it mean? Yeah. How, how many dollars do you put into that? We get a little closer in digital. We can look at like things like brand search, like how many people actually type the name, name brand in. We can look at direct non-traffic where people just like have it bookmarked or saved or type it in directly. So we have some indicators of like brand moat in ecom, probably a little bit more reliable than somebody selling you a plumbing company mm-hmm. on its name. But you know, if Coca Cola stopped advertising, people would probably still buy bottles right. of sugary syrup without seeing the polar bears at Christmas every year. Right. Maybe a decade or two, like some impacts, but like bet you sure they turn off spend for three years probably wouldn't change a thing. Yeah,
1: which brand do you think? has the most potential
2: Out of the portfolio today? Yeah, to
1: integrate this content piece and really...
2: That's interesting. I think the top two are Nikki's and Valley. Yeah. I was, I was kind of thinking the diaper. Yeah, they have the most... They have the strongest identification between product and avatar. The stronger the correlation between an identifiable niche customer segment or customer avatars and the end product and commercial demand, the stronger that is... The better the strategy is. So, like women who read a blog about this New Yorker with makeup, like you build an affinity for like a certain look. Going back to the Glossier example, like there's a very tight product market fit between the content and the, the commerce side of that business. Hmm. For us, I think it's those two.
1: Yeah, sweet. All right, what are you working on now? What's current?
2: Closing up acquisition number six. Getting our ERP implemented. What's an ERP? Enterprise Resource Planning. It's like big boy accounting. <laughs> You guys in service businesses have a somewhat easy accounting process, if I may. Like, you know what your cost on a job is, and there's better inventory tools and tracking tools and labor tools that are built for the business model of providing services. Accounting and revenue recognition and costing in at scale or subscale e commerce is much more challenging. So,
1: especially with the manufacturing piece, because you have to tie how many minutes into each article? Is that how you?
2: Break it out. We are getting to that level of detail in our costing process yeah. for our in-house manufacturing yeah. this. We yeah. have, so like <laughs> back to the call for health relocation. We didn't have that when we bought the business. We figured out costing through spreadsheets and manual processes later because we, we didn't onboard it to the ERP the day we closed. It's gonna happen next month, I think. We already have the spreadsheet work done. Data that we couldn't get pre-closing, that we had post-closing about costing, huge value driver in our ability to measure that more accurately through the ERP. And to control it and to drive it down.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. All right. So, are you allowed to talk about the acquisition you're currently working on? Like rough stuff? Rough stuff. When's this podcast going live? Probably next Wednesday. Might be, might be a little close to drop. You got eight name. days.
2: Yeah, about eight days. It was listed by a broker. And was this like biz buy sell? No, I do love buying from non industry brokers. I, I love a good biz buy sell broker. Yes. it's yes. yes. my, my favorite thing. If you can find a mismatch between the quality of the asset you're buying and the person selling it, you have the opportunity to create value. Yeah. Oh,
1: who did oh no, that, that I was about to say, who said that? It was it was literally you four months me. ago. Yeah, I walked through your <laughs> warehouse and you were like, you were like, one of the best things that we've done is buying the right asset from the wrong person. Like you bought some something off Empire Flippers that they had no business selling, or it was something like that.
2: That is correct. Yeah. Okay, yes. that's great stuff. Yeah. <laughs> Back to accumulated advantages of doing roll-ups and yeah. you know, a hold count. Listed by a web broker that like knows what they're doing, ran a somewhat competitive auction process last fall, and I was not interested in being the high bidder for it. High bidder, couldn't close, fell through for whatever number of reasons, went back to market in February, and I was really firm on like if you want us to buy it, it's got to be because you want us to buy it, not because of like the last penny of consideration. You played that game, it obviously didn't work. And this individual is yes, we were paying a more than fair price for the business, but I do believe we want it on the merits of our ability to quickly, coherently, easily, successfully close, not on the last penny of consideration. Yeah. So, how big is the team? This is the typical three sixty five okay. acquisition. So, minimal team. There's a couple service providers that will terminate relationships with post closing. We'll pack up the inventory at the three PL. Trucks will have it rolling to Akron. We'll get it unboxed. We'll onboard it to our customer service stack. We'll change all the passwords. We'll update all the billing and credit cards and everything. Like it'll be a twenty-four hour like in business transition. We'll need to learn a few of the long tail nuances. Hey, this random customer service question that's like not well documented. We'll go to the owner for that kind of stuff. But like Facebook ads, no problem. Google ads, no problem. Email flows, no problem. Website, ad, like all that stuff's kind of plug and play for us. It's really a, a good bolt on, and it's the typical business built on vendors, very minimal team. It's really just an owner-operator who's doing this off the side of his desk. He's a professional, and this is not his full-time career. So it's a great acquisition for us in a bolt-on fashion. Yeah, you know, we, we view the brands, kind of as lines of business in the hold go. So we're bolting on brand number six. Yeah, that's cool. And will you, is this manufacturing as well? You guys bring it in? It's not. It's finished goods. And my prediction is by September, we'll have figured out how to do it in-house. Yeah. I talk a, a lot of times about Interviews like this with our team and my business partner, Justin. Mm -hmm. One thing he does not like, it's paying other people to do things that we could do ourselves, hence the vertical integration model. Mm -hmm. This is a product that gets going from bulk to to smaller containers, and I'm positive we will find a way to buy it in bulk and buy machines that can put it in small containers, and we'll know exactly how many months it will take us to recoup that investment. Mm -hmm. My prediction is by Q3 it will be happening. Yeah, that's cool.
1: And do you have to bring on new warehouse space, or have you already? Do you have enough in your 60,000 square foot warehouse? Throw up some
2: shelves. We've we've got room. This is uh, an easy add on.
1: Yeah. Do you think you're going to be doing more deals this year? So, this is your second deal this year. Third. Third. What was the other one?
2: Supplement Company. Stressed acquisition in January. Oh, so you bought two in January. Yeah. All right. So you had so in we, January. We we sold one, bought two in January. Okay. I, I yeah. knew about the selling Don't one. do that if you yeah. want to have like holidays to your family and employees <laughs> that don't hate you and yeah. that kind of stuff. I was told I was not allowed to do that again. Yeah. Like a Q1 review, planning for Q2, and yeah. on the stop, start, continue, under stop was Kelsey can't buy two things and mm-hmm. sell one all at the turn of the year. Yeah while we hire eight people yeah I, I gotta stop going
1: to those off-site strategy meetings too because i just end up getting scolded <laughs> it's, it's rough. i enjoy them they're kind
2: of fun
3: mm.
2: that's you you do no to answer your question strategically we need to wrap up the erp deployment we need to get yeah. the growth plan executed on all these great businesses that we've bought mm-hmm. a ton of hiring right now we just did an org chart reshuffle and kind of redid a number of kpis for people mm-hmm. functional roles people are in kind of took the next evolution uh, what I've seen internally is we've had the shared services thesis around how we want to run the business. But as businesses ebb and flow and they grow, we finish projects, we add new brands, we hire turnover happens. Like the org chart evolves through time. When you're yeah. adding, we had 18 people already this year. Mm-hmm. You can't have the same org chart. Like there's, you need to restructure mm-hmm. reform how you do it. So I think the rest of it would be about growth, harvesting all the great acquisitions we've made and dialing in operations getting our audit done and setting up for a refinance next year.
1: Yeah. And then before we started talking you said you were hiring for a bunch of roles. Who are you looking for for the listener?
2: Yeah, so if you are desirous of moving to move into Akron, Ohio or already here, we love You to can talk hang out here. with us. Yeah. We're cool. And if it doesn't work out at 365 Wilson Plumbing also oh. is a rapidly growing yeah. local enterprise.
1: <laughs> nice. Um, nice. Uh, we may have tried to steal some
2: Wilson employee Wilson company employees in the past. Yes. They all love you. For better or worse. So, Brandon, you want to talk about your new role at 360? Oh, all right. All right. All right. This, this is, is cute. Yeah, this <laughs> is no, cute. Just kidding. All right, HR director, content creator, customer service, tons of people in the warehouse, marketing ops, and direct response copywriting are all currently open. So, oh, man. Uh, And graphic design. Yeah,
1: that's sweet. So, that's across awesome. the whole chart, marketing yeah. ops, admin, all of it. Yeah, that's great. And then you and I were talking, well, we've been talking for a couple months, but you have a few other. Projects just right outside.
2: Yeah, so the vision for 365 is this like permanent capital vehicle, long term hold, like buy these brands and give them a home measured in decades, right? Vertical integration, build a team and culture that we're really proud of as founders and like the business we'd want to work at. That's the vision for 365. Kelsey, however, is the typical visionary CEO, entrepreneur, founder type, and I get bored and like to look at things and I get bored easily and I get told I mm-hmm. can't to buy as many companies as, as I want to. I so, get the same lecture. Yeah, I know. So to help help focus that, I launched two initiatives this year that are early but are long-term initiatives. One is our EIR program, so an entrepreneur in residence. What we are meaning that as is you come work in the business full-time in a functional role. You go apply to one of those jobs. You are in marketing ops or you're in graphic design, whatever your your job title is. And then we have an education track that after your 40-hour work week is done working at the Holdco in your job, you have a part-time job called find a business to buy. And 365 would provide the equity capital for you to go get an SBA loan and buy a business. We have an educational process about investment thesis development, about underwriting, diligence, sourcing. We want to train up the next version of Kelsey and Justin to go out and find their businesses. I think that one, they'll let us recruit really great talent that's high achieving. And two, it's sounds like a good investment. Like If I can train up somebody in what I think is a successful acquisition route, like I'd love to invest in your business. Nothing better than a small business for like accumulating cash and wealth creation and generating cash flow. So if I can go and train up and, and help mold the next generation and invest in them, that seems like a great idea for me. So that's kind of part one. Part two is 365 capital partners. And 365 capital partners, instead of bringing somebody in and training them up and, and backing them, it's our opportunity to kind of sponsor deals that don't make sense to vertically integrate. So if i want to go buy a brand, I want to pack it up and move it to Akron, we're going to own and operate that under 365 Holdings in a wholly owned model. 365 owns that entire business. 365 Capital Partners is where we're going to bifurcate that and bring in limited partners into the deal of so outside investors. And those transactions will be for separately platformed businesses. Those businesses will not be on the whole Co p They will not be integrated in Akron. They'll be their own separate standalone business. If CFH had gone differently, it could have been the first one. It could have been the one that stayed a standalone company as Mm -hmm. its own business in North Carolina. Part of 365 Capital Partners, though, is, one, we need the LPs. Two, we need operating partners. So I want to find and recruit and build a talent bench of seasoned, accomplished, high-performing e-commerce operators. Facebook ads, merchandising, marketing ops, leadership roles in e-com that kind of want to own their own company. And, again, we would sponsor back invest underwrite those deals and put together capital and operator both of these programs are eirs and capital partners are both designed to allow me to scratch my entrepreneurial itches around other ways to create value in the ecosystem partnering talent and capital but not distracting from the vision of holdings holdings is on a mission needs to do what it wants to to do objectively and let the team run the business like i'm mostly off the org chart justin's working on getting there too We want to build that to be an entity onto itself that lives beyond our ownership or executive management. We want to own it for decades, but we want it to be its own thing. And then I have my playground called the EIR program or Mm -hmm. 365 Capital Partners, where I can scratch my itches of looking at deals and doing crazy stuff, but not distracting from the important mission of what we're doing with the old co. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So with the Capital Partners, you're talking about e-commerce a lot. Is the EIR program, is that limited to e-commerce or can, like, self-storage?
2: Let's go buy a plumbing company. Like, what do you got? EIR program is not limited to e-com. 365 Capital Partners is. Got it. So I think for us to be a value-added general partner, to say, I'm going to go buy this thing and you should give me your money and I'm going to earn fees or interest or carry on this investment and we're going to own it for some defined time period as a standalone investment... I think we have authority to underwrite, sponsor, and syndicate, and lead those deals, and I can demonstrate a track record in doing that. And I think we're going to have a good interest from the market in doing that. The EIR program is very different. That's us really backing some young person that reminds us of ourselves, frankly, like Justin and I. Like when we talk to these applicants, it's like, can I see some of myself in you of an entrepreneurial drive, and maybe extend to you an opportunity that I didn't have? And if your interests are plumbing companies or self storage or a content site, or a SaaS business, whatever it might be, I'm much more interested in the thought process, the ability to source, underwrite, validate deals, to have a well-honed investment thesis that aligns kind of their circle of competence with the assets they go chase, their ability to really write a defensible reason why it's a solid investment. I'm more interested in that than if it's FBA, or a content site, or a plumbing company.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: I'm into all that. That's cool as hell. Thanks.
1: Yeah. I also, I'm just going to insert my own... Can uh,
2: I buy an Akron-based plumbing company? <laughs>
3: uh, I've
1: got one that I know of that will sell for 10 times revenue. It's us. Mm.
3: <laughs> okay, so... I think I'm on the board for you, I guess. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I, heard.
1: I think the whole distracting operations thing is kind of... We don't need to spend a lot of time on here, but I learned that lesson before you walked in the door of, like, I have to be off
2: the org chart. Yeah. Because if... It's I a, hopped back on for a hot minute because of the restructure we needed well, you know, well
1: that I mean adaptive. you're you know bringing on deals and I, th- I think that's a little bit different too I'm back on
2: I'm actually under a marketing director right now which is kind of funny yeah. Ryan's my boss for, for a bit I once got asked like have all of our deals been good have there ever been any? might have been you for if you've had this conversation with somebody asked like have, have all the investments gone well and the answer is anytime we've had a meaningful investment like six figures plus like real money meaningful money into a business endeavor purchasing a company it's gone well the times where we have bought something for $30,000, it has never gone well. I have burned more $10,000. This is a great idea, guys. We can do this in two hours a week. We have this team of mm-hmm. great people. We can just slap this little thing on to the side of our business. Like, those have never gone well. So I have a new rule about, like, deal size of what I have to look at for the whole cut. Oh, it needs to be a, a strategic and meaningful, like, actual bolt-on brand and as i look back all of our mistakes was me getting bored and distracting the team and a small amount of money that in the grand scheme of things isn't going to like hurt the business but we've taken meaningful losses of 10 grand here or 30 grand there of Kelsey's dumb ideas <laughs> so my new outlet for that is trying to one put all of our investments into like a long form thesis i write it up internally not that my business partner needs that from me but like i should as our management team try right? like accelerate their learning on what we what we're building and I want to see that like our Eirs our operating partners we get to that level of uh, sophistication. I'm looking at things and that lets me scratch that itch without blowing stupid money on a small side business that the hold co shouldn't have anyways because I've done that in the past and that didn't go well. Yeah,
1: no, I agree. And I think that that was one of the things well, you helped we, we've talked about this before, but you helped me to hone that thesis without I think I don't think I ever told you that you helped me with that. but you and I met earlier this year. And the deals that I was, I have always looked at small, like very small deals, right? And then I think we met and I was in the middle of this talking to this company that was doing like 500,000 in revenue and like 150 in earnings. And I'm like, yeah, it's going to be so easy. You know, I can, I could wrap this deal up in 21 days. I'll close in cash. Like, yeah, let's do this. But it would have, but like looking back, not even looking back at the time, I was like, this, it's just not going to move the needle and it's going to burn my capacity. Whereas I could go get a five hundred thousand. EBITDA company and that's going to move the needle that's going to do something to our org chart
2: refining acquisition criteria is this fun thing that entrepreneurs that do acquisitions get to figure out through time Um, ours is much better much sharper now than it was three or four years ago
1: yeah Sure. Yeah, I think it moves. I think it moves with time. But I, I know yeah. I appreciated that conversation with you because that, that definitely helped me to be like, oh, you know what? I'm, I think I'm good because I've done the same thing. I mean, I've you know I've done all those little small things, and just none of them move the needle. And it's sort of like a feel good, scratch the itch. Yeah, I acquired something, but that's it didn't right. move the me- needle.
2: Yep, that's good.
1: Yep, cool. Do you have any closing thoughts? What job do you want, Brandon?
3: <laughs> you, you tell me <laughs> oh this is nice uh-huh.
1: I got I got my hands full over he here he wants anyway. to be the SEO content yeah uh, <laughs> brain, head of graphic designer design, <laughs> design. no 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 yeah. <laughs> hold on I'll go into the warehouse so if people want to find out more about the job posts or like yeah, everything's on
2: 365-holdings.com jobs you can find me on Twitter join our email lists look at the capital partner opportunities apply to be an EIR all that stuff is on the website or I'm easy to find on uh, LinkedIn or Twitter.
1: Awesome, perfect thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks for having us.
3: Thanks for being here. Yeah, <laughs> thanks,
2: for, thanks for being here. <laughs> thanks for driving this. Thanks, the thanks the for coming, office guest. We don't have video on this podcast. I do just want to say that you guys have a, a stellar setup, and I'm glad Brandon went and got me a microphone so all three of us could be
1: here. Yeah, yeah, me yeah. too. I think yeah, we're gonna like have to start flying in here. guests because this is definitely this is a more enjoyable experience. Good. Yeah, usually it's Brandon and I sitting with a laptop in front of us and we're each staring at our laptops trying to like give each other like sort of like eyebrow signals for like okay, it's your turn to ask a question.
2: <laughs>
1: yeah. This is better. Want we'll you do this again? Yeah. All right, sweet. Thanks Kelsey. Thanks.